Welcome back to the Knife with the Gun Fight. I'm your host, Doc Fitz, and uh, I have to admit, it's been a while since we dropped the podcast, and a lot has happened. Over here in Baltimore, we continue in a dire situation with 335 murders in a city of 620,000 people, more even than in the whole city of New York with its 8 million plus people. The Baltimore ceasefire had its second effort for a weekend free of violence this past November, and organizer Erica Bridgeford, who we featured in episode 5, has started a new ritual called the Sacred Seven, which recognizes the sacred space everywhere that someone in Baltimore was murdered in the last year. And just about every day at 7 o'clock, she leads a group in prayer and recognition. The couple of times that we've gone, there have been about five people there. It really should be like 10,000 people every single time to make clear that this violence is unacceptable and every life lost is meaningful, valuable, and will be missed. Those Sacred Seven rituals have included the recent Baltimore Polytechnic graduate and Morgan State engineering student, Johnny Tobosh, as well as the shooting of Baltimore City homicide detective while on duty, Sean Souter in West Baltimore. His case to me really highlights the severity of the situation right now. But his case is so bizarre and highlights the dysfunction in Baltimore City right now. It's now a month after his death, even though supposedly his partner that day saw a man running from the scene. There's still been no sketch or information about that supposed killer. In fact, that wasn't even his regular partner. To complicate the situation, Souter seems to have been a witness in a federal investigation into racketeering and armed robbery by a ring of crooked Baltimore City police in the so-called uh, Gun Task Force Division. He was, in fact, scheduled to testify the day after his shooting. The police radio chatter that has been released is confusing, but it appears his partner, who drove him to the hospital, was in a motor vehicle collision on the way to shock trauma. In fact, the police department has been unable to clearly state that this was a homicide and not a suicide. Commissioner Davis has admitted that the city police do not understand the circumstances surrounding the death of Sean Souter adequately and have requested that the FBI step in and lead the investigation. Weeks later, there's still no official response from the FBI, though Jeff Sessions, when asked about it, vaguely responded in an affirmative that they should expect some kind of response. All of this confusion has led to a series of speculation by people in the city, including conspiracy theories about what really went down. Now, I have no interest in these conspiracy theories, but I have to say the whole situation sounds like a scene from Serpico. The whole city of Baltimore, including its police department and political institutions, are in a state of crisis. Meanwhile, on the national stage, the Republican establishment, led by Donald Trump, has just executed the largest tax heist in our nation's recent memory, while continuing attempts of mass deportations. The Maryland governor, Larry Hogan, has seemed equally unable to facilitate growth and healing in Baltimore. On the plus side, we recently teamed up with Baltimore Ceasefire for an event at Red Emma's entitled A History of Violence and Intervention in Baltimore, where Erica Bridgeford and Ellen G. joined us in describing that history and ongoing efforts. And I reached out to numerous individuals and organizations in this city working against violence, and I was pleased to find and meet one stranger who's now a friend, Mr. Anthony Barnes, as a hospital-based responder in Northwest Baltimore against violence. I was so impressed with this story, which resonated with everyone in the audience, that I wanted to bring him back and share his story on The Knife. And we got a great show lined up for you. So stay tuned. Put the gun down. Cease Self-destruction raised the city murder rate.
Hate turned this place to a straight murder state. Praying cause the bullets got no names. With them shots go bang through the top of your brain. Got the headline saying, innocent got slain. This is bro insane. This is not lame. Man, my the D got smoke. Read him his rights, he a dead man walking Long as he think he is Teach him how to fix his talking Know who he think he is Nigga, nigga, nigga How you figure, figure, figure That's a powerless perspective But a king is much bigger What you see when you calling your brother dummy Calling this dummy brother To set up another sucker Gave away all your power Collaborate with a coward While I'm still here I wish you peace and good health People of power Ask me, got the town looking stupid Cause another jump round here shooting Cause another pump round here shooting knife at the gunfight i'm here with a, a good friend of the knife anthony barnes anthony how are you doing first of all i want to thank you uh you know i did a talk recently on a history of violence and intervention in baltimore and you stepped up and and came and told me your story and and the work that you do uh could you just tell us you know what is the work that you're doing here in, in northwest baltimore program that we have going on is sinai's violence intervention program and what we do is we immediately respond to someone who has been victimized of violence so that we can offer services that not only make them feel prepared to deal with the second half, but just to kind of get some sort of mental comfort as to knowing that they have you know, some real help while they are in the hospital and as they deal with everything they're going to have to when they leave. So that's interesting because, uh, you know, I, I work and help people who, who come in who are the victim survivors of violence. So you take that next step after we get them to survive the initial insult, how to survive longer term. Is that is that more or less correct? Yes, sir. When someone has a... a several injuries, whether it be from a gun, a knife, or a different weapon. The process in which they go through surgery is one that they kind of looking to make sure that they're going to be alive and going to heal up and maybe can walk again or walk the same. And the services that we offer is to ensure that the individual kind of deals with their trauma and not just their physical pain. Hmm. And I want to get to that, but first I want to understand how is it that you came to this position? And whenever I interview people, I like to start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? And for example, where did you go to high school? I grew up in Northwest Baltimore. I'm from Shirley Avenue, which is in the lower parts of Park Heights. And I went to Northwestern High School. By the time I reached high school, personally, I was I was in the gangs. I was selling drugs. I was pretty much in the cycle of violence in a way that, even though I didn't like constantly perpetuate violence, my whole lifestyle kind of like drew violence in. How did you find yourself in that position, and what age did that you think that that really started? I think that at age 13, after I started doing drugs, alcohol, and participating in activities like that, I began to want money 
money led me to selling drugs. Selling drugs led me into dealing with society in a way where my world mattered and everything around it just existed. But I kind of felt like at 13 years old, up into 14, 15, 16, that I was living in manhood the more that I didn't go in the house on time and those type of things. That's what, where my mind frame was. And so where did that take you? When I was in high school, that's the point where I reached my least focus. So I could do the academic work. I was smart enough to get through the coursework, but my focus wasn't on the classroom. It was more so on being popular and being known for going hard and those different type of things. So I found myself getting to a point where I was just actually coming to school just to keep up a name for what everything people thought I was. And one day it was a, a school fight. And this was kind of like the turnaround of where, who I thought I was. So somebody's fighting and everybody runs to the fight to see who's actually fighting. And it was somebody that shared my gang. And when I seen that, I immediately went in to help that person. And I ended up getting assaulted much worse than they actually was. Yeah, it actually brought me to Sinai Hospital where... I had a broken jaw and I was here for about two days. Well, when I was sitting in the hospital bed, I still was kind of my normal self. Um, I had a few friends that came up, a few people from the community, my mom, and I just remember like joking. And even though it was serious, it was like, I knew, I'd been on both sides where I fought and lost or I won. And so I, I kind of was in that mind frame, but when I went out and left the hospital, I had seen my face in like a, a car reflection. And I just looked at my face for probably like two minutes. And I immediately, my whole mood changed. So when I was in the hospital, I was mad that my jaw was broke. I was mad that I was gonna have to, you know, drink milkshakes and applesauce. And, but when I seen my face, physical face, like I, you know, when people looked at me and I didn't see who I was used to seeing, it, it, it affected me deeply. And so did you go back to high school then? Go back to Northwestern? Yeah, I actually went back. If, if, if that fight happened mid, like a Wednesday or something, uh, whatever had happened, a weekend happened. So I went back in school that next Monday. But when I came back to school, it was like none of the guys that assaulted me were suspended or anything like that. So all of whatever happened was still in the school bill. So the um, the school police ended up saying that I had to go home until I healed up because they were just afraid that something else might happen. But I really wasn't even in a retaliation type of mind. I was more so in a trying to save face type of uh, mind frame. Were there other incidents like that later on after you healed? Other kind of uh, violent incidents? Yeah, I actually wasn't, it was months later, but I ended up in a situation where I, you know, with all those weeks that were going on, I, I was kind of on my own. I was just dealing with 
whatever happened, I was dealing how I felt, I was dealing with not being able to eat, but I was only dealing with it kind of internally. And as I was just getting the wires out of my mouth and I was going back to school, a guy had a, we had an altercation and he ended up chasing me with a gun. And I had came back and shot that guy. But that led me to six years and seven months of incarceration wow. immediately. What was that experience like for you being incarcerated? Hell every day. Every day of living hell, literally. The, um, the process of those six years and seven months consisted of a lot of self-healing. It did, I was a, you know, 18-year-old on a comp on a compound full of murderers, rapists, robbers, and so I had to figure out was I them or was I, you know, whoever I was trying to become. And I was able to do a lot of things during my incarceration that not only helped me like deal with myself, but I became a tutor. I became a mentor over the years. I became someone who you could rely on to help you get your GED or to sign you up for school. And by the time I had got back into the courts, I had a whole new case to present as to who I was and the facts were I wasn't lying. I had people from the community, people that I had made touches with that were coming out to support the change. And when I had finally got you know, home through a modification of sentence and just seeing what I was trying to do. I had a person who knew, like, my qualities and what I was good for, and she set up an interview, and that's how I met and got the uh, yoga position. And then working a yoga job, I was immediately put in a round where even though I needed money, I needed a place to stay, I needed... Um, a lot of things as far as the come on my own, I immediately had a job that was putting me in a grind mode. So I had to get to work. I had to get to the places that they were training me to teach people how to practice mindfulness, mm-hmm. how to do proper breathing, how to be in you know a good exercise type of fit. So the yoga job was the first job that I got. And it was the job that enabled me to tell my story to five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds. So hard as my story is, is I'm presenting it to you way before you turn 13, way before you join the gang or the gangs are attracting you. So I kind of felt like God put me in a position. It's like, all right, we're going to take you out of this hell, but... This is what you're going to be doing. And I'm walking into the rec centers. And as much as it look cute when you take a picture and you tell everybody what you're doing, I'm dealing with youth who are literally traumatized by everything that's going on in the city around them. You know, it sounds like you were able to do a lot of self-healing in jail. Were there resources that helped you make that transition, or did you have to do that on your own? I had, I had a drive. I had a drive that... The prison system tried to kill every day, but what kept me motivated and what kept me up is that before 2013, I pretty much didn't meet like any strong stand-up men 
that were operating with principles and moving in a way that heals the environment and I taste from it. But even before I met anybody that would like mentor me and help me get to the next level, I was a reader, I was a studier, and I was a writer. And I always found ways in which I, whether it was just letting one guy read my poem or sending my poetry home, I constantly communicated with people as I grew. So people kind of, the more that I put out there, how much to my mother, my sister, my brother, my cousin, in these letters about I'm learning new things and I'm going to do this, it was a, a challenge. So when it came back and we got to the next year, I was constantly trying to find something new to send my mother. So 2010, I put together a step show that I did in the city jail. First ever in history or something like that happened. 2011, I was the valedictorian person that spoke at the graduation. So my mom drives out two hours and still gets to get the GD experience. 2012, that's when I became a tutor. So now I'm talking about the guys that I'm tutoring, the Asians, Spanish guys, I'm learning Spanish. I just kept trying to impress my family members, my friends, or whoever was a girl that I got her attention. I wanted to be who I actually was being. So when I had got into Patuxent in 2013, the environment was much more different. It wasn't as, it, it's very constrained but for someone who is programmatic, it's not as strange. So I was able to, you know, kind of shift from just a, a guy involved in a lot of programs to I was able to make my own program. And so you said you're a reader. Who who were you reading while you were in jail that really uh, resonated with you? I started reading a lot of books that dealt with 60s movements where you're dealing with the Black Panthers, you're dealing with the Malcolm X story without it being like the cute side where you've seen the movie, like actually learning the story. So did you read the autobiography? Yes, I definitely read the autobiography. I also read books like Community Itself by Naeem Alkwar. I read books like To Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. I read books like um, Ender's Game. I read books like I was reading so many different books that it was like I challenged the world. It was like, all right, I like the way these stories are going in these books. And I pretty much don't like how my 16-year-old story was. So as much as I, I, I talked about it in a um, film that I did yesterday, it's like I had got to a point in my conservation where I didn't even feel like I did the crime because I wasn't the person who did it no more. So every time, it, it, it would be different situations like somebody in my age group met up with me in prison and they would call me the name that I was known for all my life, like Ant. But the name that I go by is the name that I earned, a Kiwi. So it was always instances where my old younger self was challenged with my new younger self. God comes in jail. I'm the guy that was responsible for calling you down if you was under 21, checking into you and see if you had an IEP history, making sure that if you did, that the paperwork would go. And I was 19. So when somebody comes in and it's like, I just stood out and I liked it. Why I stood out? When you go into my story at 13, I only wanted to be known for going hard. 
because everything before that was being soft. So when you say you're going hard, it's like, if anybody tries me, they're going to think twice the next time, or I'm going to do something to somebody first, so, because they, I ain't like how, I, my mentality kind of shifted over. So, you're out, of, you're out of jail, you're doing yoga, you're trying mm -hmm. to mentor the youth, how do you end up at, uh, at Sinai Hospital? There was a, a Safe Street post where they had a panel interview at one. So even though I had a job and I'm a yoga instructor, it was only one hour a day. So I had signed up for BCCC, I was going to school, but that wasn't enough of my time either. So I was making a decent wage for somebody who don't got a bunch of bills, but not for somebody who wanted a car, his own house. So I was in the job search, but I didn't know where to go at because I refused to work at McDonald's or Burger King or I was just refusing to do manual labor. And Metro PCS was a job that came up before this job. So I was going from working nine to five at Metro PCS and shooting down and doing my hour yoga. But when I realized that I was working 10 hours for yoga, making more money than I was for filled 40 to 50 hours with Metro PCS. And when I seen the interview with Safe Street, so I basically just went down there it's like eight people telling them, talking, and I was the last person to go. And at the conclusion of the interview, they they liked me a lot, and they, they basically made me feel better about going to the interview that I did, and they told me to apply for Sinai Hospital here. And when I applied for the hospital, you know, you, you think about being an ex-felon, you think about everything that's come when you try to get a regular good job. But I was very depressed because I was working two jobs and I was doing all the good stuff. I came out and everything was supposed to be going good. But when you don't have no, like, the type of income that's a little bit higher than the, the wages that keep you stuck down. And I was just excited just to do the interview. Because they're going to ask you that question of why were you incarcerated or, you know, if incarceration pops up. So I'm sitting, my supervisor is here, and I went to the big interview first. And it was a doctor or a nurse. I'm sorry, it was a nurse, my supervisor now, and his supervisor. That's all relevant to population health and community outreach. And that was the most intense interview that I ever had in my life. I... I didn't have to convince them that I was qualified, per se. I had to deal with the story that I never really want to deal with, which is what we're talking about. When you go and you say, hey, I shot someone, it's two type of ways to look at that. It's like, I knew that I was wrong. I knew that I was young. I knew that it was malicious. I knew that it was could have landed me in jail for the rest of my life and ruin somebody else. So it's like, how do I go in explaining this, you know, past about me when I'm not that person? So as I dealt with it, what happened was that I got an honest ear. I got a, I got an honest ear as to why it happened, you know, where I was mentally, and only that I could do is be 100% honest about well, you know, the why, the what, and the dynamics of why I should be qualified for doing it now. 
And when I look at my own story, I just remember that I, I never I never owned my own gun. I never carried a gun. I had all these gang rags and stuff like that, and maybe a pocket knife. But when I got jumped, I, I, I leave this part out. But when I got jumped that day and I went to go assist my friend, I actually pulled my knife out first. And, and this is how much time I had to think. Because all those guys was just beating the crap out of one guy. They didn't think somebody was coming. Pulled my knife out. Then I put my knife back in my pocket, and then I ran into the middle of the fight. So I never, like, even since that, I hate movies that's, like, real gory. Like, Saw, I'm never, like, this, you know, bloodthirst type of person. So when I had gotten into the story, I just think that I was able to get the job here because of how genuine I am about doing the work with, you know, this realm of stopping violence. And what strikes me about your story is it seems like there were moments, right, where there was an opportunity for intervention to kind of get you on a different path, right? Mm -hmm. And one of them was when you were in this hospital, mm -hmm. right, with your jaw wired shut mm -hmm. from a fight that you got involved with that really was not about anything in particular, it doesn't sound like, right? But then things started escalating, and you end up having to go to jail for six years. Mm -hmm. So is that is that kind of how you see your work, trying to intervene on people when they're early on in a narrative similar to yours before they get into so much trouble? I often be thinking, what if somebody stepped and gave me a bedside visit before I left? Even if I'd have declined the services, if I'd have went back out and I'd have still, what would have happened with my mind frame if someone would have came in and gave me a job at 16, gave me an opportunity to reevaluate myself at 16, and consistently did so in a way that not only would I not even go back to the violence, but as soon as I had the thought of it, it's something right there combating with it, such as a violence intervention program. So what does that bedside visit look like? You walk into a room, and as the hospital responder, the first or second time, it was, it was very, I would be honest, it was intimidating because you're not just thinking about how comfortable the patient is going to be. You're thinking about how comfortable they are going to be once you're saying that you need to help them. Because who's to say they even want help? Who's to say that when you come in here and talk about, do I need a job or help getting back and forth, that I need that? So stepping into it is like, is the fear of not being wanted for just giving services. Because if this doesn't go right, then it's like, I would question myself, like, is this the right thing to do? Am I doing something? Do people want this to service? But what's that conversation like? Once I, once I get through that barrier of just introducing myself and who I am and what I'm there for, I often see people ask again, what services do you offer? Because it's almost like I offered everything that they would actually want, but is it a game? Like, are you trying to get me to testify against somebody? I often see that type of energy, but what happens is that happens over that. It's like, that's more me sensing it. What happens is that once a guy realizes that I'm only coming in here to help, and once I leave, if you said you didn't want my help, you basically kind of pushed away something that you might would have benefited from 
later on in life. So the experiences that happen once we step in the bedside is an experience of trust for anything happen. Do I trust this guy and what he's saying? And will he really be able to help me with the things that he says that he can help me with? And once the person gives me that trust, I'm driven with this, you know, strong desire to maintain that trust because I'm selfishly thinking about their success story. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about six months from now, I want him to say that me and him got him a job, a license, a new life, and he didn't get back into the cycle of violence. And that's exciting to me. Do you feel like you have experiences like that where you can, you can see... Uh tangible change in in the life of your clients? For sure. I have a client who came to me in June. This was his third time being shot. He's currently, from June to now in December, which is almost six months, he has his permit. He has completed one GD out of getting four. And once he gets that fourth one, you know, out of the next three he got to get, he will be successfully enrolled into... Uh, IT program that has a strong rate of making at least fifty six thousand or better after completing. And where do those resources come from? We really operate off of uh, really like when you say be resourceful. We go to resource sharing meetings, there's emails constantly with links to programs with people in eligible requirement fields and. I make the call to those people. I make the emails. I make the the visits, and I go with the clients to these places. And what happens is that when you when you are the resource place, you got a crutch. You gotta sign this, come here, and if you sign this and come here and then follow up, then we got you. Well, these guys aren't going to the free resources on their own, so. I feel like as long as I stay consistent, as long as I make sure the communication and sometimes I call for them, I try my best to put them in a position that, all right, I'm taking away from your responsibility right now. Heal. Relax. Don't don't put any stresses in your mind as to what you need to be doing, where you need to be driving to, how you're going to get there, because I need you to heal right now. I need. I really, it's hard telling the guy not to go outside. But I'm kind of telling you, like, if we're not doing something service-related towards your benefits of your life, you know, stay focused. And it's the kind of things like that that makes me feel successful in the post-bedside visit. I find that interesting. So I work at Hopkins, and we don't have anything like that right now. We're working on it. And, in fact, we're looking to Sinai as a, a place that seems to have a successful model. You know mm. what I mean? But, all right, I don't have Anthony Barnes coming and seeing my patients, mm. but do you have any uh, advice or any thoughts for uh, doctors or nurses who are trying to heal patients, you know, not unlike yourself when you were younger? Anything that we can do to step beyond that medical thing and try to, try to help push someone towards or help them along the path to a, a better life the way that you're doing? I think that in a job like this, right, if I could go to school and I could get, like, medically cleared, I still wouldn't want to go up and have to deal with your side of, like, the traumas. Like, 
And when I think about my side of the work, I would never want a surgeon to have to leave the table, saved and got through that process, and then struggle with the stress of, is this patient going to listen to the advice of how, you know. So I think that with the glue of things, that if this surgeon is completely detached away from the hospital responder, therein lies the problem. Mm -hmm. Because there's no sync. There's no no trust. Right. Because now the patient might say, my, I'm experiencing much pain since my surgery. And the person that needs to help them understand how complicated those surgeries are and what you need to do and not try to turn this on the attack against the surgeon can't always be the surgeon. And nor can the person that is saying, like, I need you to go follow up, be the hospital response. So I said it all to say that once the relationships get built internally within the hospital through knowing how serious the work is, you prevent from seeing, you prevent yourself from seeing the same patient again. You know, I found your your story a little bit interesting in that it seems like the yoga was also important for self-healing and sort of you coming to grips with your trauma in a healthy way and moving forward. Is that, you think that's right? I, um... I got compositional books, and I keep them. I don't rip the pages out of them, and I try my best to keep them as long as I'm living. And in 2013, I wrote six different life skills. I wrote physical life skill, family life, not skill, family life goal, uh, physical, mental, educational. And my physical goal said that I want to maintain working out at least four times a week, eating a healthy diet, and I want to learn yoga so that I can stay in shape. That was 2013. So when I read that in 2016, being a yoga instructor, mind you, I haven't read this in years. So I was like, whoa. Um, so I feel like yoga is so important to me personally because I actually lay down and meditate for 30 minutes at a time. And I don't let my mind focus on any one thought. And it's practices like that that doesn't keep anything toxic in me. It doesn't keep anything stressing me. You know, I still get stressed. I still get depressed. I I dealt with depression my whole incarceration where randomly at any moment I couldn't identify it. I was just depressed. I was, you know, and I still find that happening now. So with yoga, it was a tool that was very essential to someone who has been victimized of violence been in the cycle of violence, and now away from the cycle of violence and dealing with it. Uh, whenever I interview somebody, I like to ask for any recommendation you have for usually a book, but could be an album, could be a play, a performance, uh, a work of art, anything that you want to share with me and my audience that I might not otherwise see. One book that I would say that I want people to read is a novel that's relevant towards their life, whatever novel that may be. Because when I read Ender's Game in particular, I'm somebody who prior to read Ender's Game, I never read a book like that. You familiar with that? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember which one it is, but I have it's, read it. It's, it's like this young fiction. kid who's the one of the most smartest, and he's the most 
oh, he's intelligent. He knows how to go to war, and he, he can basically win the war for the whole planet. But they trained him, and they had very high technology, and they uh could, like, give scenarios, and they would just basically virtually do practice wars. And he didn't know that, mind you, now, when he's training, he's the best captain. He helps the team lead and, you know, win these wars. And they used this kid to fight off of the main planet they was, like, enemies with. And he got rid of the whole, he basically erased the whole race of that planet. So he, he thinks he's playing a video game and he's waging war. Right. Now, mind you, he's a warrior. He's training to go to war. Once he realized that he wiped off the planet for real and it wasn't like a game, he wasn't happy. And I had read that in 2015. So I was getting closer towards my court date and everything. But it's the books like that that helped me fully understand exactly, you know, my mission as what it relates to you know, what I want to be known for. So you've seen that as a metaphor, people playing a game of drugs and violence, and turns out they're really waging war. Exactly. Because you got, you got games like Grand Theft Auto Five circulating. You got social medias with the people we've been watching be celebrities showing us their normal selves, and it's crazy. So I like for people to deal in a world that is, isn't reality versus what you're trying to compare your life might be. Deal with a world that doesn't really exist. Think about the world that you're really in and trying to find ways to, you know, really maneuver around it. Because I read a book, Community of Self. Community of Self is the reason why I know what a drive is. I know what a drive is, and it comes from studying that book and everything that you learn. So I got a book that I wrote in 2013, and it hasn't been published, and I'm editing right now. It's called Going Against the Grain. So I'm hoping to have that done by next year Dope. and have that circulating. Well, you know, and uh, one of the things that I like about this city, I don't think a lot of people know, but there's a really vibrant uh, literary culture and, like, artistic culture and, and photography culture right now um, and a lot of books coming out. I know when you came and spoke at that event with me at Red Emma's, at that bookstore, there's a lot coming through there, like Dee Watkins, Kondwani Fidel. Mm. And uh, I was at Red Emma's the other night because they had a book release party for two books mm. for guys out of Baltimore that I wanted to give to you as a thank you for sharing this time with me. One is a photo book by Kyle Pompey, Perspective I Baltimore. This. Uh, and the other is, uh, and these are both uh, signed by the, by the authors for you. Awesome. And this one uh, by Aaron Mabin, who was uh, an NFL player for the uh, Bills and the, and the Jets, who grew up in Baltimore, and has been an artist and an activist and has a lot of poetry and paintings and photography in that book. Wow. And it's self-published, it's dope, it's really high quality, and it's just an example of, of the culture going on in Baltimore right now. So I wanted to share that with you, um, especially if you... And that's a picture of Dee Watkins right there. That's a painting of Dee. That's Dee. So I know you, you sound like you're working on some things. Just to remind you that you're coming out of a rich, vibrant literary culture and, and to really value that and take advantage of it. I thank you, man. I appreciate these gifts. And I want you to know I appreciate you. I, um, since 
speaking at Red Emma's, I had one person follow up with me, and they kind of like did a whole film thing on me on my whole story. And so now I got to keep telling my story no more. I'm just sending people the link. But I, um, I really appreciate you having a platform because it's not easy to uh, talk about my story. And a lot of times I, I live in my own world. I live in a world where nobody knows I was ever incarcerated. Nobody knows, you know, that I was in the cycle of violence. But in my mind, everybody knows. Everybody is looking at me all day, judging me from this kid who simply based upon his crime. And I, I, I battled with that for years. So now as, you know, I only been home, I ain't even hit two years yet. So I'm just thankful that you really out here helping spread this message and the work that needs to be done. Well, I'm glad I met you and I look forward to keep working with you. And thanks again for your time. Our streets filled with blood, so where's the love? We're losing dignity in front of the judge. The whole city's on a death watch. Bodies drop, when will it stop? Be more and more among the poor. People die and families torn. We set up to fail and take the fall. They kill you over things not willing to die for. They shoot That's stupid, it's getting out of hand. They stretching out your fan. they stepping out the van. The crazy part about it, they recorded on can. Damn, what happened to the I'm black and good for the kings and queens and the brown and sugar. Shots around the hood, love. Like street signs. If you street wise, you'll keep quiet. Each side, throw a peace sign. Pray for the mouths and small. And be your least mind. Ceasefire. Thanks again for joining us. And, uh, you know, I caught up with Anthony after the recording and asked him a question I hadn't thought of until the end. Has he ever thought about reconciliation with the individual that he shot? And he responded that uh, it's more than a reconciliation with an individual, right? It's a whole set, his whole family, uncles, cousins, even a whole community. And he doesn't know how to do that. It got me thinking, what does real truth and reconciliation in Baltimore look like? And that's something that I think is extremely powerful and important moving forward for this city. Uh, the media sin is repeated offenses The biggest ventures are the weak And the street just feeding agendas While they reaching for extensions They keeping attention They bleed a magenta Ain't no peace The police is deep in contention Singing the innocent drop in And big in the boxes We singing the toxic Waves of all of the villainous popping What's the synopsis? Cease fire when your brothers Put that energy in something worth loving The balance Never got our 40 acres So you know we steal them Never learn to love our neighbors So you know we kill them Self-paid Got us out here setting death dates In a prison well paid Screaming that we self-made don't you understand this is chess, that's a checkmate And they let it catch us, enslave us with a cellmate It's a massacre, I just speak the truth like a pastor does I lost my brother to my shit and blood So I realize it's been about a year since we first started the podcast In December of 2016 So I wanted to thank all of the people whose efforts and support Contributions and words of wisdom have been essential into making this successful And that starts with, of course, as always my wife, Cassandra, I appreciate your unending love and support. All those who have participated in the recording, Gaurav Madan, Zane Elamine, Terrence Williams, the ballet bullet, Damon Mullins, who recently returned to the stage as the Mouse King in a Wilmington, Delaware production of The Nutcracker. 
Erica Bridgeford of the Baltimore Ceasefire, and of course, Anthony Barnes. You all have an open invitation to join us again on The Knife. And I want to thank all of those people who contributed creatively, but also everyone who had advice and words of support, including Roxanne O'Connell, who will be starting her own podcast up shortly on diaspora issues. We look forward to it. Brian Harvey from Firebrand Records. Let us know if you ever want another podcast in the Firebrand family. Corey Choi, the award-winning sound engineer and producer from Silver Sounds. We may still take you up on that studio time offer. And I'm sure so many others who I'm forgetting to name today. And shout out to everyone who's uh, expressed interest in participating in the future, including Dr. Brian Williams, Michaela Gilliam, Aaron Mabin, Juan Carlos Pinto, Evan Woods, Kondwani Fidel, Son of Nun, Angel Williams, Garrett Bradley, and Ryan Harvey. We look forward to working with you. And everyone else who's interested has something important to say, knowledge about recording, producing, broadcasting, branding. Holler at us. You know how to reach us on the Twitter at SlyFitz, S-L-Y-F-I-T-Z. On the Instagram, knife at the gunfight, underscore between all the words. And on Facebook, the podcast page for Knife at the Gunfight. And if you like the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, any other podcast medium, or leave a rating and a comment. And lastly, I wanted to let y'all know about the music on today's episode, Baltimore Seats Fire, a mix put together by Von Vargas, featuring a variety of Baltimore artists, including Greenspan, Josh Slay, Smalls, TT the Artist, watch out for her, yo. Black Star with the Q, Ill Conscious, Femi the Dry Fish, Preem, Martina Lynch, and the Boy Blessed. Thanks again for joining us. Hope y'all had a blessed holiday season. Happy New Year and look forward to 2018. Peace, Mel, die from the heat shells. You in God's hands, so you still beat hell. It's real how it goes down. Cold in these streets, still selling these soul now. It's something like retail. That's why I speak peace. I'ma tell the streets, reach higher. Drug murderers to retire. I'ma do this till I'm covered in dirt and meet sire. It's a movement in the verse. Tell them cease fire. Uh. Product of this environment, cycle after cycle. Dream to play in ball. Could have been the next Michael. Or the next Obama. See, he really was a scholar. Made a promise to his mama. If he made it out of college, changed the world and shipped the mountains just to get it right. The projects born in '99, red as eulogy. Another black body on an Insta feed. Hashtag ceasefire, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Time after time, how many times another body get found? How many times they gon' say who did it? Think it ain't written. My nigga, you trippin'. The lie must have said, you say he's how many said it. You wanna find out who trippin', they wanna find out who did it. The lie must have said, you say he's how many said it. You wanna find out who trippin', they wanna find out who did it. Put the gun down, ceasefire!